Hey folks, Preet here. The Supreme Court concluded 2023 with significant developments. The justices granted review in two major cases. The first involves potential restrictions on the abortion drug Mifepristone. The second case concerns the scope of the obstruction statute prosecutors have used to charge January 6 rioters and Donald Trump. In other news, Jack Smith is trying to get answers as to the viability of Trump's absolute immunity defense in the election subversion case. The matter is currently before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and could soon be taken up by the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, a federal appeals panel rejected former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' request to move his Georgia criminal charges from state court to federal court. And a jury has ordered Rudy Giuliani to pay $148 million in damages for defaming two Georgia election workers. Joyce Vance and I discuss all that and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. Second Supreme Court case, totally different context, that has implications for hundreds of criminal defendants in this country, and one criminal defendant in particular, by the name of Donald J. Trump. In this case, there is a particular statute that, again, we've talked about before. It's Title 18 U.S. Code, Section 1512, which is entitled Tampering with a Witness, Victim, or an Informant. It's about obstruction, in a sense. And 300-some-odd January 6th defendants have been charged with impeding an official proceeding, that official proceeding, of course, being the certification of the votes on January 6th of 2021. And the statute, it's useful to understand what the statute says, and then we can break down what the court may be thinking in this case, says whoever corruptly, and there's two subsections, one and two, one says whoever corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, such a person can be imprisoned, right? That's about destruction of documents, tampering with documents, is very clear from that language. But then there's a catch-all provision in subsection two, which basically says whoever corruptly otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so can also be imprisoned and fined. And this case that the court has taken relates to one of the January 6th defendants. And the question is, right, if I understand it correctly, does otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding apply in the circumstance of the January 6th conduct, or must it only be applied when there has been, per subsection one, when there has been an actual tampering or destruction of a document? And that's not what happened on January 6th. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the argument that's being teed up. Let me just play Doubting Thomas for a minute, maybe literally doubting Clarence Thomas, right, who is the strict constructionist who likes to hew to the language of a statute. And here you've got two provisions, C1 and C2, and in between those two sections, there is an or. Or. So this section about records and documents written in response to the Enron crisis where employees at Enron were shredding documents to try to keep investigators from getting onto their misdeeds. That's one. And then there's the or and this clear catch-all provision that says anybody who otherwise obstructs, etc., an official proceeding. And the issue, I think, the real issue 
in this case is the use of the the phrase at the top of the statute, whoever corruptly. I think this case will come down to what corruptly means in this context, because that does modify whoever corruptly otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding. An argument that gets made that I think we can dispense with quickly is people will say, well, this a particular statute, whether it's this one or some other one, came into being because of a particular problem, right? So in the Enron case, there was a loophole that people could run a truck through that didn't criminalize what I think ordinary good faith people would think, reasonable people would think should have been a crime, the shredding of documents in connection with an investigation, you know, during the pendency of an investigation, Congress passed, you know, an amendment to the statute. But the fact that its origin occurred in the wake of Enron and a particular kind of conduct that was being addressed does not mean it doesn't apply in other contexts too. So for example, the racketeering statute in the federal system, as we've talked about before, was obviously born of a concern about the Italian mafia. That doesn't mean it can't later be used against businesses or violent gangs or things other than the Italian mafia, because the language of the statute, notwithstanding what the origin and impetus for the statute was, the language of the statute is not constrained in that way. So when people say this is not an Enron type crime, to me, that's of no consequence, right? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. This is an even better case than your RICO example, because here you've got a situation where the statute didn't get conduct that everybody thought should be criminal. And when Congress wrote the law, they didn't just write one provision to address that conduct. They, in addition, put this additional kicker on it that sweeps very broadly as though to say, and by the way, we want to make sure this problem doesn't happen again, so we're including this catch-all crime. So a lot turns on the question, I mean, two words that are very important here, as you pointed out, corruptly, we'll come back to that in a moment, but the word otherwise, right? So you have a section and sort of everyone welcome to statutory interpretation is something that we, we learn about for the first time in the first year of law school. Plain language seems to say the ambit is fairly broad, right? The first section, if you do this stuff, meaning destroying a document in connection with a proceeding, you're in trouble. But if you otherwise impede any official proceeding, you can also be in trouble. So I I don't really understand the text-based argument that, that even though the second section that begins with otherwise must require a destruction of documents too, then you wouldn't need that subsection, right? It's superfluous. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a bad lower court decision to look at the statute that way. You know, this is a court that has said over and over again, we start with the language of the statute. Here, the language of the statute is pretty clear. And the only real ambiguity is what does the word corruptly mean? Well, sticking with the the otherwise section for a moment, otherwise impedes any official proceeding. I don't think it can be the case that the court should be able to say, well, we import the substance of the prior section. In other words, you must have to destroy documents. That's not the problem, it seems to me. The problem, and particularly given this court and some rulings in the recent past, is that whatever it means, even if, if it's broader than having destroyed documents, it's way too broad. And there's no regulating principle. And to say that you can be separated from your liberty for impeding any official proceeding, I think members of the court may say, well, what does that mean? That sweeps into the statute, all kinds of conduct that's otherwise appropriate, uh, or at least not unlawful, or or at least not criminal. Isn't that where they're going to go? Because this court has found 
cases that I have some familiarity with that the honest services statute or the fraud statute, the wire fraud statute, they're just too broad. And whether or not you think particular conduct is bad, you can't have a statute that is of a criminal nature where people are not on notice as to what the actual boundaries of appropriate conduct are, right? Yeah, I mean, there is that real issue of notice here. And I think you're right. This makes me think about the court's trajectory of narrowing public corruption crimes because they swept too broadly. The reason that I'm so focused on the word corruptly is because this situation really reminds me of a case that I teach when I talk with my first years about criminal law, Screws versus United States. It's a 1945 case. Screws? Screws. Do you know this case? It's a terrible civil rights case. I don't. It's a sheriff's deputy. It's a, it's a great name for a case. that someone gets screwed in the case. And, and seriously, because they, they drag the poor victim in this case through the police station, hitting his head on the ground. And he dies. And the argument is about whether or not this is a willful deprivation of due process rights that are secured by the 14th Amendment. And the Supreme Court in that case, so this is about willfully, not corruptly, but the way the Supreme Court saves the statute in that case, because they clearly want to punish this bad actor, is that they narrowly define willfully. You know, typically in a statute, it just sort of is a parallel to knowingly. But in in this statute, it was a different statute in 1945. It's now 18 U.S.C. 242. And a willful deprivation of a right means an intentional deprivation of a right that you knew that person had. I think this case is ripe for very similar treatment, where they will say corruptly means that you have to know that there's an official proceeding and you have to intend to corrupt it in a way that's going to deprive someone of their rights. I, I see that it'll be something along those lines, but that they will save the statute. Do you think I'm too optimistic? I don't know if you're too optimistic or not. And I don't know what it means to be optimistic in this scenario. You know, there's, there's a weird irony here where I think there's a population of people who in normal circumstances might be of the view that certain laws cut too broadly and should be narrowed and there's too much overcriminalization. And yet in this context, because they're anti-Trump, because one of the implications of a narrowing here might be to get let Trump off the hook and to get and to allow many, many January 6th defendants, at least in part, off the hook, they might have a different point of view. Do you see that paradox? Yeah, I mean I do. Two of the four charges against Trump involve this statute. And it carries the longest penalty of any of the charges. But let's just say for the sake of argument that this charge is somehow disallowed as to Trump or just unavailable. There are still two counts of conviction. So I think, you know, the argument that we can have about 1512 is whether or not on its face it should reach this conduct. And I guess there are two choices. Either the Supreme Court finds that it does reach something, you know, like an attempt to interfere with certification of the Electoral College, or they tell Congress, hey, you screwed up. You need to go write a better statute if you want to do this. It's interesting that Mr. Fisher's situation it could be distinguished from Trump's. I mean, I suppose you can, and some of the January 6th defendants have made the argument, well, they didn't know that there was an electoral college certification going on. They just went and stormed the Capitol for whatever reason. And maybe you could try to distinguish that from a Trump who knew what the stakes were and in fact intended that official 
documents reflecting who the electors were were going to be put into play in an effort to interfere with the certification vote. I just don't know that the court needs to go there to reach a result in this case. So the other procedural and timing question that arises from this is how does this affect the Trump case? So this particular petition to the Supreme Court relates to somebody who's been charged in connection with the January 6th insurrection, but it's not Donald Trump. But as you pointed out, multiple counts in the indictment against Donald Trump relate to this very statute. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, Thank you for supporting our work. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.